What is going on? Welcome to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. I'm back in today. My co-host, of course, is Canucks insider Thomas Strantz, who also covers the team at The Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. I am coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. And, of course, 650. 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Drancer, what's going on, man? Now we'll get Drancer connected here momentarily. (laughs) Find out what is, in fact, going on with Drancer in a minute here. Uh, Drancer remote today, but uh, we'll we'll get it all figured out. So, I was off yesterday. I am back today. Hey, the Canucks beat the Flames 4-3 in a shootout on the road against a divisional rival. And look, that was a solid win. That was a solid performance, I thought, by the Vancouver Canucks. And I'm not going to extrapolate it. You know, we've we've talked so much about the inherent inconsistency of the Vancouver Canucks on this show, right? You You cannot extrapolate very far, if at all, from any individual or even like a week or 10 days of results with this team. So we all understand that. But for what it was, a pretty solid win on the road against the Calgary Flames, 4-3 in a shootout last night for the Vancouver Canucks. And now joining us is my co-host, Thomas Trance. Trancer, what's going on, man? Hey, man. Welcome back. We missed you deeply. Sure. Deeply sure. yesterday. It's nice of you to say that. Yeah, no, it's true. We uh, we struggled through it. We struggled through it. Hey, the by Canucks, the way, though, hold on. Minor Matt just texted it. I got to address this. He says, "Jamie, did you have the twenty-four hour Christmas party flu?" No, it was actually much worse than that. I I was not able to attend the Rogers Christmas party because I was sick uh, on Tuesday night and then yesterday as well. So, no, I wish I wish that it had been a hangover related absence, but unfortunately, it wasn't. Uh, Minor Matt, go go ahead, Drancer. Well, I'm uh, extra sad to not be in a poorly ventilated space with you today, Jamie. Um, <laughs> I, lo- I thought the Canucks played really well last night. I know people don't expect me to say that. Usually, uh, usually, you know, I, we come on sometimes and the Canucks play well and lost. And I like those days. And, and some days the Canucks play badly and win. And I like those days, too, because in one way or another, I get to ha- have a contrarian take. But I actually believe it, right? Like, I, I'm mm. focused on process, not results. Last night, you know, the Canucks held their own. Like, they held their own. They were, you know, there were parts of their game that didn't work. I, I don't love that the Elias Pettersson line and the JT Miller line were outshot 6-18 uh, to 18 and 5-on-5. Five five. But when you looked at the balance of the game... You know, Calgary only outchanced the Canucks by one at home. Um, Vancouver held their own. And honestly, in the back half of the third period, for sure, I thought Calgary looked sloppy. I thought Vancouver looked more comfortable. I was almost surprised that Vancouver didn't find a way to win it against the grain in regulation. You know, Calgary might have had more of the puck, but they didn't look convincing. They didn't look like they were full value for, for all of the possession they were having. And in fact... It looked to me like the Canucks were, you know, centimeters away on numerous occasions from sort of connecting on the space that they kept finding against the Flames on the rush. Like, I thought this was a wildly uninspired performance from from Calgary, and I thought Vancouver played really well, uh, led by, you know, that, that dries Garland line that sort of got more and more ice time as the game went on. 
Uh, Boudreaux was clearly impressed. Mm. Uh, they played, you know, the fact that that line spent more time on the ice together as a trio than the Pedersen line did, I think speaks volumes about the nights that both had. And, you know, I, honestly, this was one of those wins where I thought the Canucks were full value for the two points. If they'd only secured one, um, you know, I, I think that would have shortchanged them. I thought they deserved it in, in a meaningful way last night. Um, if this team plays like that every game, you know, we're going to be singing a pretty different tune on our show. Probably not about the big picture needs that this organization right, right. Uh, still has. But in terms of how this team's performing, like one thing I said on the show, uh, I, I don't know if you listened to it in absentia, I, my friend. I, I did not. I was napping. Yeah, I was enough. napping it off yesterday. Well, I, I'm glad um, you missed literally nothing. <laughs> um, but, but one thing I said was the thing I really didn't want to see was Mangiapane, Dubé, and Kadri, that line just con- just con- by a considerable margin outcompete the Vancouver Canucks. Like that was my concern going into the game, and that absolutely one hundred percent did not happen. The Canucks were full value for their effort. Uh, I liked a lot of what I saw out of Vancouver and Calgary on Wednesday night. Yeah, and I don't think it was like a statement performance. You know, the kind of no, thing where you'll no. be looking back and saying, "Well, that was like a high point for the season," but it was just a very solid, credible performance. And and this team needs more of those, right? <laughs> like, like rather than seesawing between highs and lows, if you, as you said, if you can string together a long run of just consistent, credible performances, yeah, it probably doesn't result in, you know, a nine-game winning streak or whatever, but it might result in a lot of, you know, six and four stretches, seven and three stretches, things like that. If no, you let's be real. That's a baseline. That should be a baseline yeah, expectation. It should. Exactly. Right. And like last last night, they came out and they weren't outcompeted. There like was that's our base. That should be our baseline expectation. There was for no this team. stretch in that game, and you just think back to against Minnesota, against Florida, against Washington. Right. You can go back even farther to or or season. Arizona. Think about yeah. Arizona and how easily the Coyotes were able to establish and maintain possession and stack heavy shifts on top of the Canucks. Like the Canucks got two points out of that Arizona game, and I came out of it thinking that was appalling appalling uh last night was you know i think a really like professional hard-working game from this team and i i just i haven't had enough opportunities to say that win or lose win or lose this is what i would have said like regardless of how the shootout went regardless of how overtime went you know uh that if this team performs like that on a regular basis you know we'll we'll be talking very differently about this group of players and and probably not their playoff chances i still think those are remote but you know, this was the sort of performance you'd hope they'd build on. You'd hope would be their standard. And if you are still looking and thinking about the playoffs as kind of your primary focus of the season, I, I know I saw you made, you made the point on Twitter, it was a big result for them, purely from a playoff race standpoint, right? If you drop those points in regulation against the Flames, and I know they only end up picking one up on, on Calgary as a result of it going well, to Well, they just couldn't afford to – they couldn't afford to be you couldn't lose in, in regulation. sixth – yeah, you couldn't afford to be in sixth in the Pacific with a six-point gap between you and fifth. Yeah. If you if you want to even like talk about the playoffs, that's right? really I mean, for, really tough. Yeah, for me, for me, a loss last night would have been like, okay, it's time to to really move on. A, a regulation loss, anything other than that, at least you know we can see how the team performs through this stretch of holiday games. You know, three games against the Winnipeg Jets, uh, but by January fifth, for example, right? Like. You know, they've at least earned the opportunity, I think, for us to, you know, wait and see. Like, can they can they close on a team like the Jets? Because I still think 
you know, four points back at Calgary and Calgary looked uninspired, but I still think Calgary has enough talent to figure it out. And, you know, even guys like Jonathan Huberto, my guy, didn't have didn't have a good game nope. at all. At all nope. last night. But you know how like you know how when you do a math problem, if you're a little bit off, that's a bigger problem than if you're way off. Because if you're way off, you probably just don't understand the process and there's something that can be fixed. Whereas if you're just a little bit off, your understanding's like close to right but off you know and that's like a harder thing to, to sure. deal with uh huberto to me was like off in such a way where it felt like it could still click for him it wasn't off and he looked slow it wasn't off and it looked like his effort was gone he didn't look checked out to me it, it just looked like a player who was pressing who plays a precision game but is you know you know like Pedersen last year Right, like where where a guy's off and it looks really bad, but you can tell that it's off by just like a degree or two, uh, or sorry, you you can tell that it's off by more than a degree or two, and and as a result, it almost convinces you that it's closer to being on track than it might be if it was just like, well, he made a couple bad puck handling decisions. Like he was so off that I almost think he's going to click in at some point here. He's too good not to. He's still too good not to. I, I really came out away from that game thinking Huberto played badly, but I'm not worried that he's not going to be an elite player for this team at some point this season, much less, you know, over the long haul. Well, and I will say, you know, you use the word uninspiring for Calgary's performance. I think that's a good word. They looked like they need a Jonathan Huberto at his best caliber offensive player in that lineup to give them that extra spark, right? Like there was, a, there, was oh, desperately. I thought there was still a lot of good structural things from Calgary, but without lacking the the offensive oomph that they had from Goodrow and Kachuk last year. And obviously they were hoping to get at least some of that replaced by Jonathan Huberto. And you saw how desperately they need that last night as well. A couple of the, other the, tucks. Go ahead. Uh, I just want to say their power play entries. Their, their play through the neutral zone. And, like, Vancouver did well. I'm not taking anything away from Vancouver's penalty killers. I think Vancouver's penalty kill has meaningfully turned turned the corner, right? I don't think it's going to be even close to league worst by end of the year. I think in, in almost every respect, they now profile as a modestly below average penalty kill, um, which is great, which is great. That's a huge deal for this team. If they're not bleeding goals on the PK, that, that changes the complexion of an awful lot. But... In terms of in terms of Calgary's entries, like no matter what, you should be able to establish occasionally, even even if by accident or or by dumping possession when you have an extra man <laughs> and you're and you're trying to enter the zone, they were so hapless. It was unbelievable to watch. Like I was honestly dismayed. Dismayed and I have no rooting interest. I don't care at all. I was just like, this is awful. This is really awful hockey. Um, that power play needs some work. There's so many things that don't make sense about it. Like, how is Nazem Kadri not on, not in the bumper? How do you not have a one-time option on the other side, considering that Huberto and Kadri are both lefties? Like, all of it, all of it made no sense to me. Mackenzie Weger was probably their most dynamic puck mover, and they don't use him on the power play. Like, none of it, none of it made sense. It was all so ugly to me. A couple of other texts about the Calgary Flames. Van Can Fan John says, Don't be fooled. Nice game by the boys last night, but let's not forget the accumulative fatigue the Flames were playing with. They just got back from an Eastern road trip. They had played yep, back to back. Four, four and six. Yeah, day off, yep. game day, travel home day, then played the Canucks. That's a very fair point. Also, this one unsigned. As much as I love their win, we have to remember that Calgary is struggling. And again, I said off the top of the show, when people – 
you know, I came on and said that was a really solid road win from the Canucks. I'm not extrapolating anything from that, right? Because we've talked so much about the inconsistency of this team. I'm not immediately expecting that it's going to be the launching pad for them to uh, really reassert themselves in the playoff race. But for what it was, take it for what it's worth, it was a nice performance last night, even with the caveats added in uh, about the Calgary Flames. All right, that's our general thoughts. You mentioned it, and it really is the number one takeaway. There's there's other stuff to get into, but the number one takeaway in terms of what we might see in the next game, in the weeks to come from the Vancouver Canucks from last night's game it's got to be the third line, the Garland Dries Hoaglander line that really leads the way for them, kind of accidentally put together with Besser, a late scratch because of a non-COVID illness. Hoaglander draws in, and, I mean, they scored two goals. They, More importantly, I thought they they were the only line that consistently controlled play uh, against Calgary, as you mentioned, off night for JT Miller and, and the Bo Horvat line, really off night for the Elias Pettersson line. And that line was great. They they had instant chemistry together. And you know what I liked more than anything is they had instant chemistry and just an instant identity as a line, which was all offense. We're not we're not going to count on you to play uh, to play tough defense. You're going to be an all offense line, and you're going to do your damage on the forecheck. You've got two really good forecheckers on that line. There's a very specific way that they're going to be asked to play together, and it worked instantly last night, Drancer. Well, yeah, and they were a lot to handle down low, in part because, you know, while they're shorter players, Connor Garland listed as the tallest of the three, by the way, which had me chuckling a yes. little bit when I was uh, when I was writing out that sentence. Actually, I wrote him in as five foot seven and and the editor said he's listed at five foot ten. And I actually had a bit of a chuckle um, with regards to the way they played, though, you know, against a towering Calgary Flames defensive group they're impossible to get the puck off of. Like, they're just really hard to get the puck off of. And and what do Garland and Hoaglander have in common? You know, they're relentless on the wall. Yeah. And, and this was sort of, I think, part of why I liked the game so much was you saw, you know, the way that they refused to get pinned, the way they struggled um, when defenders tried to do it, the, the effort level, the seams showed, but they were a lot to handle below the hash marks. Like, they actually played a black and blue game, and that's what made the line effective. It was... You know, Connor Garland blocking that shot, uh, looking looking quite hurt, and and in fact, I think is hurt today from from that shot block. Um, Niels Hoaglander throwing the body, right? It, it was the it was the board battles, it was the fifty fifties that they kept consistently coming out uh, with the puck from. Like they were successful because they played uh, a black and blue game, and it was a ton of fun to watch. Honestly, stylistically, reminded me a little bit of the triplets. Obviously, no doubt. Uh, a very, very low-end version of that, yes. and that's not an insult. You know, the triplets line included one of the best two-way forwards in hockey in Andres Palat and uh, an MVP-worthy player in Nikita Kucherov. But the same dynamic, the same, like, throw three guys who work really hard together, all have a low center of gravity and whose games sort of complement one another uh, on a line together, and it can be a lot to handle even for, and maybe even especially for, larger defenders. I, I want to see that line get a lot of run. You know, th this team hasn't had uh, more than two lines clicking at any given moment this season. Um, you know, with apologies to the Oman group, which I think has done their job, but, you know, their job, the, the our expectations are a lot yes. lower for that line. Um, I think this line has a chance to be pretty interesting. And, you know, I want to see it. Like, I want to see Dries, Hoaglander, Garland 
get a pretty lengthy run here. Um, obviously, Hoaglander shouldn't be removed from the lineup anytime soon. Anyway, I, I surely, surely we agree on this now. Like, how long? How many? How many times does this guy have to play well? How many times does this guy have to have the highest work rate on the team before this is widely accepted? It, it, it's becoming baffling to me. But yeah, I want to see this line get a lengthy run. I, I thought there was something there. There's something there, and I want to see the sample pool so that we have a chance to figure out if it's something or if it's nothing. Yeah, Hoaglander, I mean, he he had a very noticeable game in a, in a really positive way last night, right? And it's kind of, you know, just looking because the standard that Boudreaux has set for Hoaglander so frequently has been bottom line has to be there, right? I mean, he has six points in his last nine games. Right, averaging 13 minutes a game in that time. What else are you looking for from a player getting those sorts of minutes in terms of bottom line? Right, so he's living up to his end of the bargain right now, and of course that's after a two assist performance last night. So by Boudreaux's own standard, I mean you're getting what you want from Niels Hoaglander, and especially with the way he performed, it's not as if those were you know lucky second assists or anything. I mean the the pass he makes to Dries on the third goal is fantastic. And his work rate is there, and his puck retrieval is there, and all of those other things. I mean, he's checking all the boxes you could want to see right now in his game. Absolutely. I want to. I want to touch on a couple um, texts we're getting in because I think they. What's the triplet line? Asks someone. It's uh, Tyler Johnson, Andres Palat, and Nikita Kucherov, and they fueled sort of the yeah. first like really great John Cooper season for the Tampa Bay Lightning. Um, one person, one person unsigned asks, can you touch on the issues Canucks had getting the puck off the flames on delayed penalty calls? And, and someone else um, also unsigned noted uh, that the um, um, this they said, Thomas, if the Canucks were to somehow to continue to play the way they did yesterday and, and become the seventh, eighth, ninth place team, they really are. How does our how do our long term issues get fixed? when we're seen constantly dangling the playoff banner for this team uh, results in the core continuously being trusted in. So I think, sorry, it's a little discombobulated, but no, I think I the question is, if this team yeah. is pushing, if this team is pushing, does that give them the license required to do what this organization loves doing more than anything else, which is to double down on a roster that's not, not nearly good enough? And for me, these two texts are related because although the Flames played poorly, I think in your mind's eye, like what, what I'd ask you to think about is those moments where Hannafin, Uyghur, Anderson activate down low. Right? I thought, even I, even I, Nikita yeah. Zadorov. I thought Anderson had a excellent game. I thought he and, looked and really, really I thought good Uyghur did too. Yeah. Like Uyghur had some and, and there was this moment he had, for example, where he like waits that extra second, freezes the defender, then hits uh, I think it was Dubé, um, you know, with a with a stretch pass that allows him to enter the zone and like the pass itself created a step for him. And like when you think about the way that Calgary was able to attack as a five man unit, both both in terms of how they maintained possession in delayed penalty situations, but overall five on five, like there's elements of that style of game that look like a different sport from what the Canucks play. You know, I, and and I ask you to just keep that in your mind's eye because. To some extent, when we talk about structure, when we talk about the way that this team plays or, or the wins being unsustainable, the, the blow the zone and pray that you get goaltending approach that this team is so often relied on, like that's what I'm thinking about. It's that style of game. And you can see, even though the Canucks won and I thought were for full value for their victory over Calgary, like the Flames play a game that you can see permitting them to, you know, uh, 
still be while they're playing poorly and while they're getting poor goaltending uh four points clear of the canucks or however many is four points right four uh, points clear yeah three points clear three points clear anyway now. But but also once once Huberto clicks in, once they've got chemistry going with Kadri and their new additions, once Tanev gets back in the lineup, once they start once they once they start getting saves, once they start cooking with oil, you can see how this team could get on a run, right? Like really easily, you can understand it. Whereas with the Canucks, you know, again, it's it, it's like they're so dependent on uh, conversion rate on extraordinary save percentage performance that it's it's tougher to fathom how they can string together the sort of streak they're going to need to get back into the picture in part because of how they control play even though calgary played poorly for me last night you could see the seams of how it will work for them i still don't see enough of that like five man attacking group uh control the game at five on five type game from vancouver and and i i even think think that was true last night while they performed well and while the effort level was certainly there for this team. Yeah, and the interesting thing about the question of, you know, if they're in ninth place, is it going to make it more difficult for management or make them less likely to make these kind of big sweeping changes? If you look at the Bo Horvat situation, and, I mean, we've talked about it a lot this week, obviously. I'm not sure that, like, that's such a, such a dollars and cents thing with the cap, right? That it's not as if they're considering trading Bo Horvat because they want to start a rebuild. As much as I might say, look, if you make that trade, you kind of are rebuilding. I don't think that's how they see it. I think they just see it as strictly a cost thing. Being in ninth, you know, in February doesn't change the dollars and cents of a Horvat contract extension. So I'm not sure it takes that off the table. And then, you know, to kind of tie this conversation in with the discussion about Garland and Dries and Hoaglander, if Connor Garland kind of rediscovers his rate scoring form of his career over the next, you know, 30 games or whatever, going into the trade deadline, I don't think that's going to dramatically change how the front office sees Connor Garland fitting into his plans. I think it's a good thing for the team because it makes him a more valuable trade asset. It might help to rebuild some of his value, but I don't think it's going to turn make them turn around and say, oh, well, we have to keep this guy, or we have to keep this guy around now, right? So when you talk about the kind of big moves that could happen, it's really Horvat and everything else, and I don't think the Horvat situation can really change based on their spot in the standings. And everyone else, again, I think is kind of farther enough down the lineup that you know, you can trade Connor Garland, and it's it, that doesn't mean you're in a rebuild, right? That just means you're you're freeing up some cap space and trying to reallocate it somewhere else. So I wouldn't necessarily look at it as, oh, if they're going to be in ninth or eighth place, it's going to forestall these big moves. I understand the concern, but I think when you look at the the actual perspective we've heard from the front office and kind of just the shape of the decisions they have to make, I think it's less likely that that happens. Yeah, I mean. I think I think at the end of the day, at the end of the day, structurally, right, it's fair to say that this management group is in on at least seeing what this group can do mm-hmm. based on based on the wide angle lens of how they position themselves based on the offseason, based on the fact that they made, you know, a trade to clear additional cap space and add another piece they needed to their blue line before the season. And then with things really, uh, you know, rem- don't forget, like the Stanika trade gets made and the bear trades both get made e- on the heels right of the Canucks winning their first game. Right in their eighth game of the season, they made the Stanika trade. Then the next day, they make the Bear trade. So, um, you know, 
the overall fact pattern, far more than their words, suggests that, you know, if this team could get on a run and look more like the club that was expected, uh, they'd be receptive to that. Now, does that mean that they'd be willing to go past the deadline with Luke Shen and, and Bo Horvat on expiring deals, having not signed extensions, um, pr- provided that they were only a contender for a wildcard spot rather than firmly ensconced in, in, a, in a race for one of the top three spots in the Pacific? No, I don't, I, don't, I don't think they would be. I think their eyes have to be trained on the big picture here, but is there a, a receptiveness? Will there be an internal receptiveness should this club surprise? Should this club play more games that look like the one in Calgary on Wednesday uh, over the balance of, you know, like, let's say the next five games prior to the holiday break? Uh, Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure internally that would be welcome news and would maybe even give them some flexibility to put some of the drama behind them and and sell from, you know, a a position of strength, a position of uncertainty, um, a position of what are they going to do as opposed to, well, they need to move guys uh, and that can only serve their purposes. It's Canucks talk here on Sportsnet 650. Shayna Goldman from The Athletic and the Too Many Men podcast will join us next. You've got it on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Strands here with you live from the Kintech studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative is at Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Somebody texted in. Answer asking if, and this is a reference to the show yesterday, so I don't understand it. But if asking if Steinberg, our guy Pat Steinberg from 960, texted you after the game, uh, watching the Canucks in person and seeing their discombobulated structure. So, did you get that text from Pat Steinberg? I did. <laughs> I did. He uh, he realized I was correct after the Canucks frittered away their two goal lead uh, toward the end of the uh, first period. So, uh, that's yeah. very good. Yep. Very, very so it good. goes. <laughs> uh, well, Stein, Steinberg's good company. Steinberg's um, fantastic. Always, I, I, I was sad I missed uh, chatting with Pat Steinberg. Actually, always fantastic. Always fantastic to uh, to chat with our guy. Uh, this text comes in. Uh, Rasmus Anderson was great, but hey, we got Sven Berchi instead. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, it, <laughs> it's so long ago that it almost it it's. It feels like beating a dead horse, and I guess it is. But it's also it's it's impossible to watch it to watch him play really well against the Canucks and not think about that, right? Um, I suppose. I mean, I don't know. I, I it is for me. At the end, here's the thing: it's not like they traded Sven Berchi for Rasmus Anderson. Yeah, yeah. They yeah, traded they traded him for a second round pick that you know that was Calgary deeply used on. Him. Deeply unlikely to become Rasmus Anderson. Like, go look at that second round and all the defensemen taken ahead of him. Right? I mean, you know, would the Canucks have nailed that deeply obvious pick based on Rasmus Anderson's strong counting stats in the Ontario Hockey League? Who knows? <laughs> I'm guessing you have a thought on that. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, I'm not. I'm not. No, I the don't. Canucks, the Canucks, Who knows? At, that, at that point in their history, the Canucks actually drafted relatively well for a franchise for whom that's not often been said. 
Yes, indeed. Uh, 650-650 again is the Dunbar Lumber text line. And now joining us on the show, we always love having her. She writes for The Athletic. You can also hear her on the Too Many Men podcast. She is Shayna Goldman. Shayna, thanks as always for doing this. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Uh, our pleasure. Um, Canucks win. They beat Calgary last night 4-3 in the shootout. Bo Horvat scores again up to 21 goals now. And... You know, here in the market, there's been a lot of drama surrounding Bo Horvat. So we we talk about certainly about what he's doing on the ice, but we also get caught up in the other stuff. From your perspective, from afar, what have you made of Bo Horvat's season so far? He's really having an ex- excellent season, and you know we can you know break it down in so many different ways. Like it's the clutch play and the big moments that he's coming through, which is obviously super important. And we can quantify it looking at the fact that he's you know slightly picking up his uh, shot attempt rate and he's converting more with shots on goal and he's getting to the quality areas more, which is improving his expected goal generation too. And like, there's the difference in the shots he is taking and, you know, more tips and deflections and things like that, which are going to, you know, be big factors in what's boosting that expected goal rate too. So it's a lot of like individual improvement, but it just feels like what he's doing is boosting the players around him as well. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the the tip-ins and the deflections and the shot rate, and it's easy to go to, you know, his hockey reference page and see, okay, he's shooting almost 22% this year. His career number is down around 13 and a half, and you can say, all right, well, he's due for a steep regression. And look, I'm not expecting him to shoot 22%, but when you talk about, you know, how a – how difficult it is to look at it and say, okay, a player has kind of changed their shot profile. Maybe they've even gotten better at a certain type of shot. So, yeah, we might expect some regression, but maybe not as much as you would expect if you just look at his career numbers. Yeah, that's why like, it's so important for us to to take that into consideration, everything we know. And it's not saying throw it out, but look at the context around it and try to like build it up. I think a good you know case for this was Chris Kreider last year. He's scoring 50 goals, which he's never done before. You know, this is a player that's generally in the 20s and 30s. And, you know, it was a matter of, you know, figuring out what's making him click so well. The power play, shooting the puck way more when we know that he's going to be that net front presence with tips and deflections. He's going to have more chances to make those tips and deflections. And, you know, we know he had the finishing ability and that hand-eye coordination. It was just a matter of getting more pucks his way so he could do, you know, what was making him so successful, what boosted his goal total a little bit more and there's a confidence factor to it if you're getting the puck in the net a little bit more often you have a little bit more confidence to either one go for the shot that maybe you think of passing in some situations you know that you have the hot hand that you should go a little bit you know forward with it you should be a little bit more aggressive and you know there's just getting the lucky bounces and having things go your way like there is something to it Shayna the Kreider example is interesting because we have seen him regress it's just we've seen him regress to perhaps a higher baseline, right? Right. And, you know, with Chris Kreider, I think everyone has to keep their expectations in check, too. Like, last year, the entire season, you know, it was keep your expectations in check. He might not hit 50-something goals, and there he goes scoring 52, but there were reasons why he did. And a lot of, you know, his play, we can look at and say – it was a lot more focused on his shot than years past when he might have passed it up to give Zibanejad the better shooting opportunity because we knew Zibanejad to be the Rangers' most dangerous shooter at that time. So, you know, like there's different things that go into it, but this year he's regressing. He's still at 14 goals in 30 games. That's still a pretty good mm. pace for him. And, you know, it's just a matter of one year something might work and one year it might not as well. You know, his game hasn't changed so much as the results just aren't there as much, but, 
you know, you could see the power play scoring. It's coming from different sources. He's still playing his game the same exact way, but, you know, maybe he doesn't have to tip that shot and maybe the shot is a little bit more accurate in the first place. So, you know, it's tough, but his regression isn't suddenly making him a bad player. It's just keeping him a little bit more on track with where we would expect him to be in the first place. Shana, we've been talking a lot about it, but I, I was pretty unimpressed with what I saw out of a Calgary Flames team that I'm historically very, very high on. What are you noticing? Uh, I mean, in their five-on-five results, you can see some fall off, but it's stark just how feckless they seem when it comes to scoring goals. What What's off there in your view to this point? So it's so interesting because like last year we look at Calgary and we say – this team has one really good scoring line and they really need to figure out their bottom nine. And it feels like, you know, sure, it didn't go their way this offseason. This wasn't how anyone would have, you know, drew it up and would want it to be. But at the end of the day, when they settled on that roster for opening night, we looked at it and said they have more scoring depth. They have a little bit more, like, variety in their lineup. They should have three pretty good scoring lines or at least two good scoring lines and an excellent shutdown line for their third line. And interestingly enough, this year, despite that, you know, lineup configuration, which they've obviously tweaked to get things going, they're not getting to the quality areas as much offensively. Like, you know, they're still a good defensive team. Sometimes the goal, you know, the goaltending hasn't been perfect. And that, you know, a lot of it now looks like a confidence issue. And we could talk about, you know, do we understand how goalies workloads weigh on them and things like that. And how, if that's, you know, a factor here, did Markstrom start falling off in the playoffs? And this is a continuation of it because he plays such a huge workload. Like, those are questions to ask too, but for me, I keep looking at it going, this offense doesn't have the pop it should. They're not driving to that net front area that you'd expect them to. And you look at it last year and they got a lot more from the middle. Yes, they shot the puck from the point and, you know, you hope for some traffic in front, but they had that net front presence. They had more from the scoring areas. And this year you see it like they're pretty much outside that home plate area generating offense. And that's a huge thing that has to change for them to really start turning it around. That'll give them the goal support that I think they need to support the goaltending that needs, you know, as much help as it can get right now. What are you seeing with Jonathan Huberto right now, Shana? Is he in some ways a victim of what else is happening in Calgary or is, is his performance contributing to it? I mean, I guess it's a little bit of both, but just looking at his scoring rate and obviously you would expect regression from the highs he was at last year, but it's been such a crash for him so far. It's hard for me to kind of really figure out uh, what's happening with him in his first year in Calgary. Yeah, like the interesting thing is that they're so good defensively while he's on the ice. That's something you wouldn't expect because he isn't really great defensively. Like, you know, sometimes he coasts a little bit. Sometimes you see him just waiting to shift back to offense and not providing defensive support. And that's fine. That's what some players do. That's what they're instructed to do. It's no problem. Like, that is your strength, stick to offense, because when you can get the puck on your stick, watch watch what you can do. So it is a little bit different because we're seeing – how strong the team is in their own zone. They're really not letting anything from the quality areas while he's on the ice. But if that's taking away from his offensive game, that's a problem. It's something that's a little bit odd. You know, we've seen them try to figure out the right place in the lineup for him, who's the right shooter for him to play with and things like that. You know, in Florida, he was so successful last year playing with a guy like Sam Bennett, who was a really good net front presence who can just put on, you know, a lot of get to the dirty areas and put up that shot volume. And Toffoli and Elias Lindholm are two very different players, but you would think that Lindholm, a player who's very dangerous from the slot where he tends to shoot from, would benefit from a passer like Huberto. But it kind of does go into some of the trends from last year. Like he is someone that stood out for his passing ability in all situations, but when he started to break it down at five on five, 
the primary shot assists were a little bit lower than you would expect for a player that had the results that he did. And it shows, you know, then you get into that question of maybe we should be talking about the fact that so many of his assists are secondary. So mm. some of the flaws in his game might be what's hurting him now. Maybe he's not the play driver we all think him to be. And there is a very big difference between him and Johnny Gaudreau in the passing department, which I do think is true. But I think that the rest of the team around him isn't making it any better either. So the fact that he's not giving up much is a help. But if they're not creating much, it's, you know, it's it just bland and boring, which is what the team is a little bit while he's on the ice offensively. Yeah, they certainly looked that uh, on the ice uh, last night against the Canucks. We're in conversation with Shana Goldman of The Athletic and the Too Many Men podcast here on Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. I wanted to ask you about a player who had a really good game, which we haven't been able to say that much for the Canucks this year, last night in Connor Garland. When the Canucks acquired him, it felt like he was pretty highly valued around the league because of his really consistent high level of five-on-five scoring. Since then, and since they signed him to an extension, you know, I think the market for players of his type, you know, middle six wingers, has really cratered. You you don't typically see teams wanting to spend on that type of player. And almost through no fault of his own, Connor Garland's trade value as a result has really cratered. Given the circumstances around the league, do you see kind of a viable path for Connor Garland to rebuild his trade value with his performance this year? I think that there should be. I mean, like so many teams are so fixated on the big fish when, you know, these are the secondary players that should be in conversation. It would be interesting to see where things go at the deadline. Like the top winger on the market, if he is on the market, is going to be Timo Meyer. But there's going to be losers who miss out on him and shouldn't be overlooking those secondary options like Garland, you know, sure, he has term on his contract. Yes, you know, he's not the cheapest of options. But for a middle six player, it really isn't bad if you can maximize his game within a lineup. And, you know, we see some teams going for players like that. I think L.A. going for Victor Arvidsson, we saw the impact that could have on a lineup, just having a good second line. Or, you know, even if you're a deeper team, if that would be your third line, you know, it's a good thing to have. There should be teams looking for that kind of spark you know, sure, he's undersized and, you know, sure, he's not the perfect forward. But how many players can we talk about in the league that like truly are? You would think a team should be looking for this. And if you dig a little below the surface, there's, you know, a lot to like in his game. Sure, you know, you can find flaws in anyone. And some of it could be the contract situation and not wanting to commit that long. But I think that a team that is starting, you know, getting into the playoff mix again, not someone that's at the end of their window, should be looking at this because if you can add a player for a couple playoff runs and, you know, spend a little bit more to, you know, squeeze the Canucks who don't have the most leverage, that that should be a good thing for any team to exploit. Shana, you mentioned the amount of leverage that the Canucks are, are seen as having within the league. But, you know, I always like to ask this because in Vancouver, we can get a little insular. And I think this is not tr- just true of Vancouver, but all hockey markets where regional viewership is so much more significant, perhaps, than national viewership. But how how do you look at where the Canucks are now since we last spoke? But overall, I mean, they've won nine of their last 13 and yet still 22nd in the NHL by point percentage. How are you viewing what this team is at this point? The Canucks are the one team, I think, if you had to pick any team and you say, what situation don't you want to join? Don't you want to be the one to solve? I think San Jose is probably number one, considering their contract situation. But the Canucks are right up there, because I still think that there's no perfect solution to their situation. If they, you know, right now they're winning games. 
that's great and wonderful. If they can sustain that, that's also great and wonderful. Are they a true contender in the West? I still don't think so. Could they get there? It's possible. But how are you going to do that? How are you going to manage that right now? I look at them and I still am confused at what their window should be. And it's all because of, honest about the Miller contract. Because right now, you know, the Canucks are going to look at a situation and go, we still have an, you know, a question mark in Bo Horvat. And if we move Bo Horvat, now we're without a center. Do we trust JT Miller to be that center? Probably not. And that's been the theme throughout his entire career and probably should have been thought about a little bit deeper last year before he was signed because at the end of the day, they could have gotten pieces back for him that either would have helped in the big picture or helped them make a future move that would have rounded out their roster a little bit better. But now they're in this tough situation that I don't think any team would envy them for because they have to decide, do you give Bo Horvat a contract you know probably isn't going to age really well, or do you move him, but now you have to figure out your center position and the player you just paid $8 million to for the, you know, for the next handful of years probably can't be that. Like, I still struggle with that. So the winning is great for them. I, you know, maybe there's a way out, but I think it's just going to take so much creativity, and I question if they have it. Now, I know you said you didn't want to be in this spot like you wouldn't want to be wearing uh Jim Rutherford's shoes at the moment but nonetheless looking through this roster looking at where they're at looking at their books looking at the prospect system um I mean what what would what would like step one be in terms of reorienting this club's focus in your view if they were going to get back on track to being a contender is it as simple as sort of gulping hard and accepting that this might be a multi-year project? I think they do have to accept that it's a multi-year project. And I don't think it's going to hurt them if they move a big piece out and get enough back that it can kind of like set them off in different directions. Like if you move a big player, you can get a lot of assets back, whether they actually help you on your roster or they're going to be the future trade pieces. And I think that there's a way to do that without bottoming out necessarily, which I think would be a problem. I think that's a decision that should have come before especially before the Miller contract but you could say even you know a couple years you know a couple months or a couple years before that too like so it's really tricky because you have to navigate the right now of some of their core players and you know benefit from Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson and and balance the giant contract you gave JT Miller but maybe you do have to kind of step back and figure out a way to quickly retool on the fly which I think is one of the trickiest things to do and it's something teams aren't ever honest with themselves enough about because if they can see where their playoff future lies and not just go, well, if we make the playoffs, one, we're going to make a lot of money Two, anything can happen in the playoffs and just go, maybe we're not good enough to truly contend. They can set themselves in the right direction, but you have to commit to that and not go back and forth once you start that. And that's a big thing for teams to do. A lot of them are so hesitant to, especially after the lost revenues the last few years. So if they can be gutsy enough to do so and say, this is going to be a multi-year project. We're not tearing it down. We're going to make one big splash and hope that kind of, you know, the ripple effect of that is what sets us in the right direction. Then I think they should be all for that. But I really think this decision, like not to be super repetitive, should have come sooner. Yeah. You know, you make an interesting distinction there, Shane, saying that they might they might have to commit to a a multi-year project, but that doesn't mean you have to bottom out and be Arizona or Chicago and kind of purposely make your roster as bad as possible. And I I almost feel like with the rise of kind of tanking across sports as a strategy that we've kind of lost sight of what a traditional rebuild looks like, which is, yeah, you're going to trade some, you're going to make some future oriented decisions, but 
to me, there's a far cry between rebuilding for a few years and purposeful all-out tanking uh, like we're seeing around the league in a couple of markets this year. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that you have tanking. I think you have tear it down, rebuild. You have a retool on the fly, and then you have, you know, tweaks as you're contending, and then you have, like, going for it as much as possible. Like, there's different levels to it. And teams like you could think of the Penguins when they got Crosby and Malkin and the tank. Like, they tanked. We're seeing that right now with Arizona. Um, But there's a difference between that and, say, what the Rangers did of tearing it down. Uh, But the – I mean, you can even say Montreal a little bit, but I, I don't think they've committed to it as much. Like, if they, they have without saying it in a way, because mm-hmm. they don't want to say the words as much. But, you know, the Rangers aren't even a good model to follow because they got incredibly lucky that no one should be banking on. But there's definitely a way to go about it, you know. And when you go about it, committing to it the right way, there's the uber-patient approach, like the Winnipeg Jets, or there's the Tampa Bay Lightning approach, which I think is what everyone should be looking at, and even, like, the Colorado Avalanche, how they managed it. Because those were rebuilds that they really did commit to the process. And they never went and, you know, spent a ton of money on someone and said, this is the piece to move us in the right direction. Like, say, the Sabres did with the Matt Molson and Kyle Ocposo deals. Like, they did them at the wrong time to the wrong players. The Rangers, at least, when they did it, it was to our time Canarin. That's the big fish you're going for. It's an elite player versus these are mid-tier players we're going to throw money at and hope that they fix our problems. So, there's definitely a different way to approach it. And I don't think the Canucks need to even go as far as the Rangers did or the Lightning did. But there's a way to do it maybe a little bit more aggressively than the Blues did the year before they won the Cup because at least they understood, hey, we're going to make the playoffs, but we're just not good enough to make a dent in the playoffs. Let's start making moves now and see what we can turn over. If they could be a little bit more aggressive than that, I think that that would be a good path. Shana, we always really appreciate the time. Uh, We'll have you on again soon. Thanks for having me. That is Shanna Goldman. You can read her at The Athletic and hear her on the Too Many Men podcast, one of my favorite uh, league-wide NHL analysts and commentators. And, uh, yeah, preaching. Preaching to she, my choir, at least, at the she, end of it. I mean, I mean, I want something more dramatic, but I, I, I like that she brings up a useful rejoinder to the 2019 Blues argument, which is that the year before the 2019 Blues were the 2019 Blues. They sold at the deadline despite being a playoff team it's a re- to, to load up. It's a really good lost example, right? That, we, that has it kind really of been is. forgotten about. But, yeah, you can do it. You can sell, <laughs> and, and it doesn't mean you're committing to a five-year tank. There, there never, are other options. <laughs> never underestimate. Never underestimate the ability of hockey fans to draw the wrong lesson. <laughs> from a team's success. I also did enjoy, and somebody texted in, she's right, anything can happen. She she slipped uh, an anything could happen she? in there. I, yeah, how she, did I miss that? Yeah, she was describing uh, the the philosophy and perspective of NHL front offices, not not endorsing the idea that anything can happen. She was saying Phew. Uh, they convinced themselves that they can squeeze a little bit of revenue, get into the playoffs, and then anything can happen. But I, I was nope. half expecting you to uh-uh. jump in. Nope. I'm gonna sound like I'm gonna sound like I'm telling my dog to stop chewing something. Nope. Uh uh-uh, uh uh uh. No. Bad. Bad team. By the no. way, I also think uh, uh-uh. that the Canucks should be should be cutting her her advocacy for Connor Garland there and sending it around to teams. Her her pitch for the idea of trading for Connor Garland. It was hey. well well made. Hey, Connor Garland's a really good player. I like really good players. I think this team can't use enough. Like can't have enough really good players. Um. If you're going to consider it, at least at least see at least see what he can do uh, in a, in a more elevated role. Like I think it would be a shame to trade Connor Garland before he ever sniffs PP one. Yeah, 
Well, at, at the very least, I mean, he wasn't on PP1 last year, but what, he had 50 points, right? So I think if you get yeah. him into that range in terms of his usage and his offensive production, that's fine. I get it. The the dream is to juice his value on PP1, but I think even if you just get him back to last year, uh, then at least you're talking about something a lot more palatable. We will take a quick break. Lots more coming up in hour number two. Keep your thoughts coming in 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. It is Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks Insider Thomas Drance covering the team at The Athletic as well. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. And 650-650 is your Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, Canucks beat the Flames 4-3 in a shootout last night. Day off for the team today. They'll practice tomorrow. They are in action against the Winnipeg Jets back at Rogers Arena on Saturday. And we talked uh, We talked in the first segment about our general thoughts on the game, Drance are also the the instant chemistry and instant effectiveness of the Garland Dries Hoaglander line that was thrown together unexpectedly in the wake of Brock Besser being out with illness ahead of the game last night. Uh, some other things to get into from the game, and I, I mean, I will say it's interesting now. You know, presumably Besser's probably given the extra couple of days off here. You'd probably think he's ready to go on Saturday. Not a guarantee, but a good chance, and it does create an interesting question of. Who comes out if he's ready to go? Or does he actually get? Does does the healthy scratch that almost happened but didn't because of Dakota Joshua's injury actually happen now? Because, I, I mean, even Bruce Boudreau, I don't think, can take Niels Hoaglander uh, out of the lineup. Or or Connor Garland or Sheldon Dries after the way they played on Wednesday against Calgary. Even Bruce Boudreau. <laughs> what? He loves to take Niels Hoaglander out of the lineup. Yeah, it's unfortunate. It's not, I'm not um, wrong. No, you're... Very rarely wrong. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I first of all, Garland broke blocked that shot in the second period, so I, I'm sure he'll be fine. But I, that's, that's honestly the re, the react. It's a knock at the very least. Yeah. The reaction to it um, implies to me like, hey, let's let's maybe just wait and see a little bit longer before we, you know, assume that we're just going to see the same lineup. Um, that was a pretty physical game both ways. I, I, I'm not saying that, you know, anything is wrong necessarily, but would it, would it surprise you? Nope. Like, would it surprise you at all? So we'll see what the Canucks look like at practice tomorrow before we uh, look at the lineup. Um, you know, Lazar had some moments. Lazar is a good player. Uh, he hasn't had a, he hasn't had like a, you know, I'm searching for the word and I'm going to come up with something ridiculous. It's like a bangerang start to his Canucks tenure, but He's played well for the most part. Uh, PK impact maybe hasn't been there, but I, I think you can see the reliability, the physical play, uh, the, the fact that he doesn't take penalties. Um, you know, uh, Jack Stanika, they clearly like him. 
I don't know how you sort of sort that out, but it feels to me like Besser going on to the Miller Horvat line. You basically do like Bo's version of the Lotto line. Yeah. To me, feels like the most obvious answer. Because again, I want to see Dries, Garland, Hoaglander play together and get some run uh, in the event that, you know, they're all healthy enough to do so. Yeah. Besser, as poorly as he has played, and, you know, we've seen that together, that trio together him with Horvat and Miller and it didn't stick around for long it does still feel like the best chance they have at kind of having three lines clicking at the same time right as you said it's been rare that they've even had two lines clicking at the same time this year and I know the Patterson line wasn't doing it uh last night I do wonder if maybe there's some lingering illness with Elias Patterson maybe that he was getting over as well last night because we know he missed uh practice earlier who knows that's just speculation on my part, but they did not have their fastball, to say the least, last night. But it still feels like if you want to have three lines that are clicking that you can count on to generate offense or expect to generate offense, your best bet, you know, I like Curtis Lazar too, but, I mean, he is what he is as an offensive player. Your best bet is probably to put Besser up with Horvat and Miller. It's just, I mean, Boudreaux tried that, and he didn't like it. He went, he went away from it pretty quickly. It's just hard to see another combination that gives you – the ceiling that that one would have if you're going to keep the Dries Garland Hoaglander line together for the for the immediate future. Yeah, I would say I don't know that we need to see a lot more of Lazar Miller Horvat. Like we saw, oh, that I don't think you was, have to. No, no, I, it was hard working. Like it's not that they had a poor game, but when you look at the underlying results, like you know, I mean, that was a far cry from what that line is managed with Niels Hoaglander, for example. And I think that's sort of the issue is. As much as I liked the Hoaglander dries Besser line and think it deserves some run, you know, that is if you're still intent on not doing the most obvious thing that this team should do, which is keeping Hoaglander with Miller and Horvat. That that's been the configuration that's given this team by far, far and away, the most control of proceedings five on five with their top six group. To me, you load up your top line, make your top line as good as it possibly can be. And with Hoaglander on that line, that's what it's been. Like it's been a legitimate weapon. There's been almost no other uh, sort of configuration the club has come up with um, that has managed something similar. Like, the, you know, it just not, nothing else has among the forward lines that they've used somewhat regularly. Like if we go, if we go among, the team has used four lines, four lines for um, at least 40 minutes. Okay. Okay. And let's, let's just go goal differential and then, you know, I'll, but I mean, the fact is, is that, well, I don't like goal differential. Let's go. Shot <laughs> Forget that. Forget yeah, that. Great radio. Great radio here. Um, you know, Miller Horvat Garland has been good by shot attempts, but they've only scored uh you know, I think it's two goals in 95 minutes, right? Hoaglander, Horvat, Miller has been sort of their second best version of that uh, by shot attempts, but the goal events are far better. They've scored six goals in 90 minutes as opposed to just uh, two um, over over the same frame of time, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like the Hoaglander version of that line gives you the most control with actual bottom line. For whatever reason... It's been 100 minutes. Garland hasn't worked there in terms of generating goals. Now, maybe that changes. Maybe it's worth giving it a longer line. But either way, you're looking at one of those guys on that line to sort of now um, give you your best shot. Now, if you think that 
you can come up with a really good, really interesting third line using both of those wingers, then you need to figure out who plays with them. So is it a matter of recalling Pod Colson and giving him a look? Do you throw Mikheyev on that line and maybe throw Besser with Kuzmenko and Pedersen? Um, you know, in any event, for me, if I'm intent on keeping that third line together, which I'm not, right? Like, for me, the first line is the bigger priority. Get that first line up and running to its maximum potential. Miller and Horvat are the most important parts of, of what you need to have at least you know, working five on five. The Pet Pedersen's driving his own line at this point. I don't think you need to worry so much about keeping him with Mikheyev, particularly in a world where um, Miller Horvat um, are, are are eating toughs, right? Like if they're if they're your tough minutes group, if they're your matchup group, then I, I think you can free Pedersen up a bit. You don't have to worry about putting him with a defensive minded forward like Mikheyev. I think you can maybe experiment. So I mean. My view of it anyway is Hoaglander, Miller, Horvat is your best chance of having a really robust top six. The Pedersen line, you leave it, it as is, and you keep trying to figure out what to do with the third line, which is which is super difficult. Um, what I, you know, that that would be what I'd most like to see this team do in the event, though, that they're intent on keeping Hoaglander with uh, Dries and Garland, which I also have some time for. Then you got to rotate people through that top line I think we saw enough in terms of the Miller Horvat line just spending the entire night in their own end of the rink uh that we know that Lazar is not the answer so um you know whether it's Pod Colson whether yeah. it's like whether it whatever cycle through figure it out but uh that's that's sort of how it works in my view well right you're either you're either trying to solve your third line or you're trying to solve your first and I'd always rather know what I'm doing at the top of the lineup and we've already seen Bruce Boudreaux kind of rotate guys through right studenica got a chance with horvat and miller ben lazar gets a chance but but at horvat practice miller. we never really saw it in a game did right studenica i want to say no, that we, we did. only saw it at practice and you know this is sort of what's yeah, interesting right. too right. the canucks threw out one configuration at practice on sunday another at practice on tuesday and then a completely different configuration in the game on wednesday so clearly boudreaux's just like you know He's not drawing names out of a hat to use a, fa a famous Travis Greenism, right? He, but he's clearly looking at his whiteboard, moving things around, and just trying to solve how to get some measure of control at five on five. Um, it looked okay. It looked okay overall uh, against Calgary on Wednesday night, but it didn't really look okay in the top six. And maybe that's just maybe you chalk it up to an off night and take another look. But I think there's something more materially at issue when you play Horvat Miller and, and Lazar. I just don't know that you have enough of the speed that Hoaglander brought to that line. I don't know that you have enough of the neutral zone push that he can give you. And, you know, both as a puck carrier and as a guy who's able to turn the puck over and get it going the other direction. You definitely have more defensive stability, more predictability. And maybe that matters more from Boudreaux's perspective. But. Um, you know, I, I thought that line, I, like the Pedersen line had an off night and I'd chalk it up to an off night. The, the Miller Horvat line looked stuck in the mud in a different way. And this text comes in unsigned and you mentioned him as well. What about Pod Colton? Got to bring him up eventually. That is a, an, an interesting piece of this puzzle. And, and as, as much as I can kind of see in my mind's eye, Pod Colton, when he's firing at all cylinders, working on a line with Horvat and Miller, I can picture that working. I also don't know if they're going to bring him right up from the AHL and put him in that spot on their top line. Now, 
you know, I haven't been watching the Abbotsford Canucks games, but he has five points in seven games, so he's he's doing what you wanted him to do, right? Go down there, play a bunch, eh. produce. Well, okay. I expect I expected games. more. It's I seven expected games. more. I expect him to be the best player in the American League when he's down there. That's the type of player he is. Like he should be point per game easy at the age of twenty one in the American League, considering considering what I think of the player. Right? Like I would have expected more. Right, but and maybe he gives you more as the sample expands. Well, he, that's but, the I thing. Mean, Two, we're talking about such a small sample. Like, two bounces go the other way, and he's at a point per game. You know what I mean? Sure. So, but I'm not going to – I mean, what's, I, I'm not what's, going Lane, to, what's Lane Peterson done over the last seven games? Lane Peterson, he's been on fire. He's been on fire. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd be curious considering how well he's playing and considering the way that he fits with uh, Jim Rutherford's classic template, right? Speedy bottom six guy. Um, I wonder if we'll see him sooner than later. 17 too. goals in 18 games for the Abbotsford Canucks this year. Lane oh, Peterson. boy. There you go. Oh, yeah. boy. He's pushing, man. He's pushing. Sheldon dries. Good thing he, he sniped that corner. Uh, last my night. guy. My guy, Lane you, Peterson. Guy, finally. Lane I'm Peterson. finally right. I'm finally right. I <laughs> took a circuitous guys. route. Took a circuitous route. It looked dicey there for a moment. There's still hope for you, Mason Appleton. There's still hope. There's still hope. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, no, the Lane Peterson thing is interesting. And, I mean, look, we're talking about Pod Colson. Yeah, eventually he's going to be back, you certainly would think, uh, with the with the big club. Uh, Tanner Pearson will be healthy at some point, and not that, you know, the way Tanner Pearson mm. was playing. Oh, you're not sure about that? I'm, I'm just not counting on seeing him soon. Yeah, but at some point, I would think. Uh, I mean, who knows? Well, it's fair enough. At some point, as I'm not saying, yeah, I mean, at some point, sure. If it's as open-ended as that, I'm just saying that's, that doesn't feel like an imminent return sure. here. Sure. Uh, anyways, my point is that um, back to, I don't want to call it a glut of forwards because, again, they're still looking for the combinations that No, but that, it's, that it, it is. But it's, it's are, a lot of guys that you think would at the very least be in the lineup, right? And there are redundant pieces. I think more than that, more than anything, it's that, right? It's like... It's hard to find fits because it's there's not enough centermen. There's too many scoring wingers, yeah. right? There's not enough penalty kill guys. Like, it, you know, it, when we come when we talk about construction issues, we're often talking about cap mechanics. But to some extent, even Vancouver, even the strength of Vancouver's team, which is you know their forwards, um, is ill fitting in terms of how it all comes together. And that's sort of one of the issues uh, that we've seen sort of plague this group repeatedly over, over many years, like not even just the last two years, like dating back to when, you know, you couldn't find ways to take Sutter and Beagle out of the lineup because of the penalty kill. Mm -hmm. And that, and that drove everyone in this market nuts uh, to hear that said. And then, well, you know, Louis turns, Erickson turns, kept playing in the top six with Bo Horvat. Well, but, but and Louis Erickson was also a great penalty killer. And then what's this team done on the PK the last two years without those guys? Yep. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, there, at the end of the day, there was some method to it, even if it was frustrating and probably not worth it, considering what those players Louis Erickson accepted because he was still a good five on five <laughs> low event piece, even in his final NHL season. Uh, but considering what the, those guys achieved, um, you know, in the in the latter stages of their Canucks careers. Uh, Scorpion Rider texts in, why does it make sense to freak out about one night of good performance from the Garland line? Isn't this just another random throffy data point uh, in a sea of inconsistency? Did he call it a frothy data frothy point? Frothy data point in a sea wow. of inconsistency. That is I, I don't know. Are we, are we allowed to say that on air? 
that is um, from a listener with an elite texter name, Scorpion Rider. And hey, Scorpion Rider, he might be right. Here, well, he might you know, be right. Th- that's absolutely I'm just saying, in play. But here's the thing. The, and this, The data and the eye test matched well enough that I want to see more of it. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, and here's the thing. Well, that's it, right? It wasn't just two goals. It was the fact that they actually did control play on a night where the other lines, the other top six lines uh, for the Canucks did not control play against, you know, whatever you think about Calgary. It's not as if they're necessarily easy to generate scoring chances again. So I think it's the fact that they did that. It's also about the fact that the Canucks are looking as we just were detailing, right? We're running through all the options, all the different things that Bruce Boudreaux has been trying. They're looking for things that are working, things that can rely on, things that can give them a spark right now. And, you know, I think the natural rebuttal to that is, well, they're not going to make the playoffs this year anyways. Or even if they do, they're not contenders anyways. So what does it really matter if they find a third line that clicks? And I understand that, but it comes back to one of the points I was trying to make in the first segment. And I think it gets into our, our discussion just now about how the forward group, even though there's lots of talent, doesn't really fit together, doesn't make sense from a roster construction standpoint. If you can get Connor Garland playing well, right? If you can get Connor Garland back to the re- the level of reputation and the scoring rate guy that he was, he has been throughout his NHL career, I don't think that's – you're not cheering for that because, oh, hey, we found our third line for the future, right? This is going to be a, a key part of our of the Canucks' rebuild, and we can really rely on this for years to come. And, okay, we have to keep Connor Garland around now. You're cheering for it because it makes it easier to change the construction issues with this team, to address the construction issues with this team, right? It makes it easier not just because Connor Garland's playing better, but because, as you said, it allows you to deal with – Maybe not from a position of strength, but at least not from a position of extreme weakness. So it's not about, oh, okay, this is clicking, and now all of a sudden it's going to propel them to the playoffs, and, you know, hey, and then anything can happen. It's about they need things to go right Stop just it. so they can change, just so they can make effective changes going forward. That's yeah. what it's really about for me. Like, to me, the most interesting thing about that line is does it lead to a a, a, a reliable spark for Connor Garland, right? Is it the start? And maybe it doesn't always end up being on this line. Maybe it's enough for uh, Bruce Boudreaux to kind of regain some trust in Connor Garland after a short stint with a line that's clicking and he gets more opportunities. But that's the key for me is what does it do for Connor Garland and how does that increase the flexibility the Canucks have when they're trying to fix the construction issues on this roster, especially at forward? That's what it is for me. What's funny is, like, say the Dries Garland Hoaglander line becomes a thing, right? Yeah. I think we'll have to retire all lineup talk. Like, I think all lineup talk will have to end. Like, line combo talk, it's it's over if that line works because... Because nobody knows anything? Because <laughs> nobody knows anything. For as much as we can talk about what works and what makes sense and, you know, what we try and what the data says, it's like... Well, if you just insist on playing Lazar on the top line and then Besser gets sick last minute and you have to throw this line together, hey, maybe that's the answer. <laughs> like, li- li- literally, we'll, it'll just be like, well, when it comes to line combos, anything can happen. Uh, there you go. We You heard him say it. We, we're going to clip that and just drop it in any time now. Anytime discussions of the playoffs come up, yep. we can clip Drancer saying uh, anything can happen. I will say the other yep. thing about that line that I enjoy is – we always try to think of, 
you know, lines as like putting a puzzle together and you have to find the pieces that complement each other in the right way. And you need a playmaker, but you also need a finisher. And, you know, you need Zach Hyman, the heavy press guy. And not that those the, the games of those three players don't complement each other, but I always do enjoy a line where it's just like stacking similar guys together. You know what I mean? Like, let's just lean in to one attribute and go with that and, and see how it works. And at least for yesterday, uh, it did work for the Vancouver Canucks. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Continue uh, to get your thoughts in right now as well. I, I did want to mention Bo Horvat too, and we talked about, about him a little bit with Shana Goldman. Drancer scores again, you know, after giving the I don't want this to be a distraction talk uh, on Tuesday in Vancouver. Certainly didn't look distracted. I mean, I know his line didn't have a great night, but another tip in. Again, we mentioned it with Shana Goldman. So much of his goal scoring is about, first of all, the bumper power play shot, but also these really smart deflections, two things he's absolutely elite at. And, you know, I mean, I'm not surprised. He hasn't been distracted yet. Not surprised that he scores another goal, but I'm sure it felt it felt pretty good, I can imagine, for Bo Horvat to get that one after the week he had had leading into that game. Yeah, and right off the hop. You didn't even have to wait nope. for it. Horvat was already uh, driving the narrative, which classic, right? Just like Brock Besser did. Um, you know, this is how this works <laughs> at this point. This is the story of the season. Guy pops up in rumors, and there's lots of hand-wringing about the drama around the team, and then they score. And and that makes it <laughs> – that the stories write themselves when you're covering the Vancouver Canucks. It's just if you're trying to write a story on overall direction, you're you're guessing. Oh, yeah. It does feel like the the narrative, like, I don't even know, just the narrative machine is accelerating with the Canucks, right? Like, even the, you know, as you said, Bo Horvat right away scores, and then they take a 2-0 lead and immediately blow it in the first period, right? Like, everything is not, it's not only that everything is happening, but everything is happening faster and faster uh, all of the time with this team. Well, but but that's what this team is. This team is everything, everywhere, all at once. They yeah. are the everything bagel hockey team. Right. So they're drama and redemption. They're resilient and fragile. They're bad and they're good. Like and sometimes all within the span of one period, which is what we saw last night in the first against the Calgary Flames, because that was the one period where they played poorly. And yet, you know, for 90 seconds, they looked like the Harlem Globetrotters. I mean, it's it's a mark, I think, ultimately of mediocrity. Right. Like this. This is the thing that I can't escape is that. The wild vacillations in form, in mood, in the tenor of the conversation around this team ultimately speaks to the fact that they're kind of middling, right? Like, this is what it looks like to be average in the NHL now. It looks like you streak and and win a bunch in, in you know, 9 and 13 and also uh, go, you know, and, and pick up two points in seven, right? Like, that's what it looks like now to be in that 85 to 93 point range. It's just that it's it's unfamiliar to us because teams games individual players uh the wild vacillations in form didn't used to be this varied right it used to feel more stagnant a two nothing lead got held right a player who was a 60 point player was a 60 point player now things are a little bit more volatile uh the season gets longer you know rest injuries everything is different in terms of how we uh, except things like even the amount of point per game players in the NHL, well, right? just, like the list runs a mile long. I was just going to say so, that you see that even in the individual numbers, right? And you just even look at the totally. Canucks and you look like, hey, Bo Horvat, top five in goals. You know, Elias Pettersson, well over a point per game. Kuzmenko and Miller, their production is great. And so much of that is 
a product of what we're seeing around the league, but it can make it really difficult to get a firm handle. And, and that goes to, you know, when you're evaluating what a, what a player's next contract should be, but I think also just the state of a team within the season. You're right. I hadn't thought of it that way, but there's so much chaos just kind of inherent in the NHL game right now that it can, it can make it very difficult to pin down what a team is at any given moment. Uh, yeah, there are 58, no, 57 point per game players. Wow. Among among guys who played at least ten, right? So like removing even a guy we expect to be a point per game player like a Nikolai Ehlers, who's only played two games this season. Imagine the Jets are doing this without Nikolai Ehlers. That's actually pretty wild. <laughs> well, and 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 also and also you know worth mentioning too because, um, you know it, it's amazing the difference that an injury can make on, on a team, right? And and that's also part of what we have to look at right like hockey's so fast the injuries um you know they come for everybody uh, if you if you are lucky enough to avoid it like we, we we're seeing it right now with the Canucks and Thatcher Demko uh Demko being out for six weeks as well as Martin played and I think we gotta tip our caps in Martin's direction for a really strong game last night in my opinion um you know one injury can sway things do this is also why what we talk about that baseline of control matters uh the winnipeg jets have been without nikolai ehlers who is frankly their best player um for most of the season and yet because of the way hellebuck's playing because of the way they're playing uh they haven't missed a beat uh will the Canucks be able to match that without Demko for at least another five to six weeks? Um, you know, it's a big question. Although Martin's play is, has certainly held the fort to this point as he's poised to make his eighth consecutive start when the Canucks host those same Winnipeg Jets on Saturday. Yeah, that point about the the level of point-per-game scores right now, you, you know, I'm just looking at the, the yearly leaderboards on that on Hockey Reference. You don't have to go back that far to, you know, Jamie Benn, leading the league, winning the Art Ross with 87 points, where there were all of three players. That was 2014-2015, all of three players who surpassed 82 points on the season. Even a couple of years after that, Connor McDavid leads the league with 100 points. Now, if Connor McDavid had a 100-point season, everyone would be looking around going, what on earth is wrong with Connor McDavid? How did, they, how did he only get to 100 points right now? It, it is pretty remarkable how much that has changed in a relatively short period of time. And, I mean, we're hitting another level with it um, this year. And I, I find all of the different wrinkles and how it's playing out and how we talk about players and teams uh, to be really fascinating. Final segment of the show is coming up. You can keep your thoughts in. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Final segment of the show coming up next. It is Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trance live from the Kintech studio. Sportsnet 650 has teamed up with the Greater Vancouver Food Bank for Food Bank Friday. This virtual fundraiser for the Greater Vancouver Food Bank is tomorrow, December 16th, from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. It raises important funds for accessible, healthy, and sustainable food for individuals and families. You can donate today, right now, by text. The number is 30333. That's 30333. Here's how you do it. A carrot emoji donates $5. A banana donates $10. 
and a heart donates $25. Standard text charges apply. Donations close Friday at 6 p.m. Uh, I'm always I always love the show tomorrow because we get to do kind of live as it happens updates about how much we've raised i believe last year it was hundred and ten thousand dollars we're trying to surpass that this year you can help us do it by again do- donating by text to three zero triple three carrot emoji for five dollars banana emoji for ten dollars a heart is twenty five dollars again three zero triple three part of food bank friday with the greater vancouver food bank uh always looking forward to that tomorrow and again if you if you are able it makes a huge difference at this time of year. So we do really appreciate it. Okay, 650, 650 again is the Dunbar Lumber text line. And this text comes in. Uh, I used to think Bo might age poorly once he loses his speed, but now I'm thinking he might age gracefully as a net front slot beast. And uh, that's a really interesting conversation. No. Really no. interesting conversation. No, no. no. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Uh-uh. Stop it. No, and stop the stop the no one ages gracefully. It's hockey. It's a young man's game. Well, it's not true. Some people age gracefully. Who? Patrice Bergeron. Okay. Patrice Bergeron, Sidney Crosby, Sydney Crosby. Like, sure, the best of the best, but like the best of the best don't even age gracefully. It's just they have a higher baseline to come down from. Well, that's the question for me, right? Is it's it's not so much about and I'm not even I'm not even throwing this out there in a um you know, should the Canucks sign or not sign Bo Horvat type of conversation. And I'm not like, saying... Bo Horvat's 27. Like, he's not, you know, he's still a powerful uh, player. Like, he's still fast as anything. And and the net front guys, to be totally honest with you, are the player types that tend to fall off the most suddenly. You know, you think about, like, a well, Wayne Simmons. Like, only five years ago, Wayne Simmons was, you know, an outrageous uh, goal scorer. They take a, right? a I tremendous mean, amount of punishment. Right, a hundred percent. Like the guys who last the longest take the fewest hits. Generally, like you can honestly look at hits taken and hits given, and sort of be like, okay, this guy, you know, is at risk of falling off. Like, and the and the game is getting faster, and the game is getting younger every year. Like, there's no one who ages gracefully in hockey. Time comes for us all. There's no hockey Tom. Bra, I guess it's Yarmir Yager, but I mean, <laughs> it's extraordinarily rare. And again, the key thing is. Are you just outrageously good in the first place? Do you have a, a a place to come down to where, yeah, you're for a 42-year-old third liner a la Yager, but there was seasons, you know, lengthy stretches of time where you were clear, far and away the best in the world? The interesting question for me with Bo Horvat and what's coming next for him, and again, this is even completely, this is just kind of as a, a curiosity about him as a player given what we're seeing from him this season. It's not about, you know, what does he look like? At 34, at 35, right? Because as you said, it's just tremendously hard to sustain where you are at 27 and then be the same thing or something really, really close to the same thing at 34, 35. Not that it never happens, but it's extraordinarily, extraordinarily hard to do. But the more interesting question for me is what are the next kind of three years of Bo Horvat look like, right? Like age 28, 29, 30. That I think is interesting. And that I lean more. He's going to be great. Well, that's the thing. I lean more towards what the These guys are all amazing. Like, here's the thing, right? All of these guys are amazing. They're incredible athletes. They work exceptionally hard. Bo Horvat is wildly fast. He's a cement brick of a human being, right? Like, he's a huge, <laughs> huge dude. Um, and he's exceptionally gifted at deflecting pucks, scoring from in tight, finding open space, both at 5-on-5 five five and on the power play. He wins 50. I mean, he's an amazing player. He's an amazing player. He's a phenomenal athlete, period. 
period. His next three years, he's going to be really good. But you can't chase the outliers. Like I've I've been in I've been around a long enough that I've quoted like the Canucks aren't worried about the back end of Louis Erickson's deal because of how good a shape he keeps himself in. You know, quote from executive about why they're gambling that this player will buck the aging curve. You know, like I, I mean, it it comes for everybody. It does. Like there's no there's no use talking or focusing on this stuff. There are going to be outliers trying to place your chips. On like it's not betting on red, it's betting on seventeen to try and find this guy. Like you know, you, yeah, you might hit one in a hundred times, but for the most part, you're just lighting your money on fire. I look at this Bo Horvat season in a very similar way, I think, to J.T. Miller's season last year, right? Where yeah, there's going to be a regression, but at least in the short term, it's it's going to be regression to a very high level of production, right? And we can talk all we want about J.T. Miller's defensive issues, especially when he's played center this year, and that's very fair. The production is still overall there, thanks to his, especially his power play numbers, right? It's not as if he's gone from the 99 point. Uh, season last year to you know a a 65 point pace or something like that and I think with Bo Horvat we kind of got used to seeing him in that you know oh he's like a 25 to 30 type goal scorer right and then last year he gets above that this year he's going even farther than that we'll see where he ultimately ends up I'm not saying that I think his new baseline is you know a 40 goal guy but I do think okay yeah he might regress when he's 28 when he's 29 but more to like a 30 to 35 goal score, which is still a tremendously valuable asset. And and again, for me, it's more about how do the teams that might be interested in acquiring Bo Horvat view what he's likely to do for the start of, uh, you know, for the next few years. And I think to your point, he's really, really good. Yeah. There might be a little bit of regression, but regression still to a very high level is what I would expect with Bo Horvat. But I mean, he was, he had what thirty three something goals last 31. year, and then got hurt. Thirty one, but 70. got hurt with yeah. twenty games to go, twelve games to go. I yeah. mean, and he was playing his best hockey. Um, you know, not outrageous that he would have flirted with thirty last year with forty, yeah. frankly, and and especially with forty last year, especially because you remember there was like twelve games where he was completely out of sorts following. Um, you know, his, his time in COVID isolation, mm-hmm. right? Where where his fitness level wasn't quite right. He'd been in a hotel in Seattle away from family, comes out and he struggles for two and a half weeks and people start asking what's wrong with Bo Horvat, right? I mean, uh, you know, uh, like a 40-goal baseline, I don't think is even very far outside of what he's done the last couple of years, like since his finishing game took a step. And, and how did his finishing game take a step? Well, first of all, the bumper on the power play is a big part of the story, Right. There's extenuating factors there. Secondly, I I mean, he's playing with phenomenal offensive players. Like if he's playing regularly with JT Miller, who's a phenomenal, like you can say what you want about JT Miller. He's a great playmaker. He's a really gifted playmaker. And also being an everyday guy on on in the at the at the bumper in the middle of one of the best power plays in the NHL, like 40 goals to me isn't an outrageous. Now, if he hits 50, I'd say, yeah, I'd expect him to regress a bit, but. But look, Horvat's gone nuclear, but I do think his I do think he's upped his floor, right? Just like JT Miller's regressed this season, but he's regressed to like the level that he hit once he emerged as a yeah. Vancouver Canuck. Well, that's the thing, right? right? Which can... is which is an 80 plus point floor it... as opposed to the 65 70 point floor that was his career norms prior. To, to being Delta Bank. It can be both an outlier season, a potential career year, and evidence of a new floor. 
And that's why I made the comparison to the JT Miller season last year as well, yeah. right? It's kind of it's a good one. It's both. You don't expect him to be a hundred point player year in, year out, but there was also enough that you saw that you could say, All right, well, especially in the new NHL, I feel pretty good about him being roughly a point per game player. And I think with Bo Horvat, yeah, for the for foreseeable future, and who knows what his next team will be, what his situation will be, all of that, but 35 goals seems like a pretty reasonable baseline. <laughs> seems like a very reasonable baseline for me based on how Bo Horvat uh, is playing right now. And, you know, I, all of that helps put into context a little bit. And I just wanted to pass this along. Uh, some of the latest writing about the Bo Horvat situation coming from Elliot Friedman uh, on his 32 Thoughts blog today, which is up right now at sportsnet.ca. And nothing necessarily revolutionary based on what what you have reported and what Dolly Wall has reported uh this week so far Drance but just a few And what we've reported together. Yes, and what you've reported <laughs> together, what you've collaborated on. Uh I don't know why you had such took such issue with me describing you guys as collaborators when it's true. That's what you do. You collaborate together. Anyways, it's just a loaded just a loaded phrase. It is. It is a historically loaded <laughs> phrase. You're right. <laughs> but yeah. anyways, from Elliot Friedman. So first of all, reporting that and, you know, he says, he admits he, he's not, uh, you know, he's not in Horvat's mind, but his read is basically that Horvat is very much a let's keep this behind closed doors, which Horvat himself said he likes to keep all this confidential. And Friedman says, in his mind, summers are for talking, seasons are for playing. He also gives a little bit more insight, or at least his guesses on what these kind of contract offers have looks like. He says, it sounds like they've offered Horvat both seven and eight years deal, eight year deals. But multiple sources indicate the chasm is wide and bridging it, quote, will be difficult. And then he says, the challenge as I see it is the Canucks, they're not keen on going over Miller's $56 million figure. And Horvat's monster season season puts him in a position to go above that. And I think that's just such a, a concise way of putting things, right? That it would be almost unthinkable from a just nuts and bolts, dollars and cents, salary cap point of view for the Canucks to exceed the contract they gave JT Miller, the total money figure of $56 million. And yet, and this is why I was kind of getting into the idea that, you know, this is not just a smoke and mirrors, obvious regression type season for Bo Horvat. There's real underlying improvement here as well. And I think because of that, a $56 million deal is potentially a reasonable bet for Horvat's camp to make if they hit the opening market. And when you put those two factors together, again, we've been kind of talking around that in large part, but that to me really just distills the essence of things here that, okay, you have those two things, both, both of them are true. That's why we're all of a sudden talking. So in, in such certain terms of a, a potential bull Horvat trade. Yeah. Yeah. Look, it's, it's complicated to do. And, and, you know, all of this conversation, like one thing that – so I'm, I'm trying to put this right because it's not – I mean, clearly I'm in a, a combative mood, Jamie. <laughs> Me? Never. Um, but, uh, but one thing that I try to – or I want to avoid is like I don't want to have the conversation that should Bo Horvat end up signing – you know, for 52 million in total money or what mm. have you to stay in Vancouver, that it's like, well, that's better than what it could have been. It's team friendly. It's like, there is no world where it makes sense for this team to add more money for a player Horvat's age to this roster, considering where they're at, right? Like 
I don't want to get down this road or I don't want to get too far down this road without sort of just yelling like stop like turning the lights on at the nightclub and being like what are you doing <laughs> like think about your life choices for it's a second over. it's time to go <laughs> yeah or not even not even it's time to go just like look at your dance move in the light of day it's awful like man do some work you know I, I, seriously like we can't possibly be countenancing the idea that it's even reasonable at this juncture, with where this team is at, with how they've performed, with how much money they have locked into players like Miller and Oliver ekman Larson, for, for for them to continue to double down. like th There needs to be a material change in how this team approaches sort of the problem of how do you win here? Like, how do you win a cup in Vancouver? And, uh, uh, like, it's not about Bo Horvat at this point. It's about the Vancouver Canucks, mm -hmm. right? Like... It's it's about what this franchise needs to do to get to the next level, and and for not not just the next level, but like the three levels beyond that, because this team's not even at the level of being a surefire playoff team. They're not even a, at the level of being a probable playoff team, right? So, I mean, they have to level up like three times, and we're talking about signing a guy who's going to be twenty eight, adding another big money deal. To, to, when this group hasn't achieved anything and when Pedersen's big third contract is a year out, like what, what are we taught? Like we really do. I, I just, I know I'm sputtering a bit, but it's like, we have to just yell, stop, like stop. Think about it. Turn the lights on. Like sunlight's the best disinfectant. Think about this. It, it's, it's wild to me. It's wild to me that this organization could consider, frankly, with, with where they've positioned themselves uh, even doing this deal in the first place. And I say that as a huge admirer of Bo Horvat, both as a player and a person. You know, if, if you didn't have a bunch of other contracts on the books that sort of match this description, you know, Horvat would be the guy that I'd say, hey, you got to sign him for culture reasons. You got to sign him for, you know, it, it's going to hurt on the back end and you're not that close, but at some level you need a person like that in your locker room. Like he's the guy that I'd advocate for that approach with you know, all things being equal. They're not all equal. This team finds itself in a rut. And a big money deal for Bo Horvat doesn't help. Monetizing Bo Horvat at the deadline might. It might not. But at least it's better than the certainty of being locked into this endless cycle of mediocrity that's characterized the last 10 years of Canucks history. And, and it has to be noted. Like, it has to be noted. So... Having said all that, no, 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 no. So, because I agree, I agree. But and this is not a counterpoint as much as just something I was kind of I've been ruminating on since we signed off on Tuesday, and I was out yesterday, and I was thinking about it, and you know I think it was Jeff Merrick yesterday who made the point that you just look at, and I'm not even talking recent history, but just the history of the Canucks as a franchise. Trading Bo Horvat would be so out of character, so out of character for how this franchise typically operates and the more I think about it and I'm not saying I've flipped and now that I'm, I'm betting on them reaching an extension but as I have thought about it despite I think the very very convincing logic that you lay out and I'm right there with you I really like Bo Horvat as a player I think he's handled the job of being captain here phenomenally well there are so many so many reasons why you would want Bo Horvat on your hockey team especially in a Canadian market and yet the logic is still inescapable that you have to explore trading him. You have to trade him. You have to trade him for the package you can get at this deadline. The more I think about it, the more I'm kind of mentally preparing for us in, you know, January or February, Drancer, 
to be coming on the air and and breaking down a surprise Bo Horvat contract extension because maybe I'm being I don't know if the word is like uh, cynical or you know whatever whatever word you want to use like I, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here but it's just the more I think about it the more I have a trouble envisioning the Canucks actually doing a deal of the magnitude of trading their, you know, prolific goal scoring captain in the middle of the season. Forget where they are in the playoffs, but just that deal, that deal, doing it like that. I just have a really hard time picturing it. It still might happen. I'm not saying it's done. I'm not saying it won't happen. It's just looming out there in a more real way for me than it was, as I said, when we did the show on Tuesday. Uh, the, the looming out there, the extension. Yeah. The idea yeah, that mean, it could still happen. No, well, of course, of course. But, like, let's put what you're saying in plainer language, okay? And not that you not that you obfuscated. You made a very clear point. But I, but I want to just sort of zoom out. I want to yes, zoom no, out. do it, do it. And talk about the shape of what you just said. It's hard to assume that this organization, based on a history of acting irrationally, would stop acting irrationally. Yep. Okay. That's basically it. Be v- That's basically I be very it, clear. Right? Yeah, okay. Well, uh, but like w- we can't we can't ignore that this makes no sense. Like we can't ignore that this deal if they were to do it, even if they were to do it at a team-friendly clip, materially harms their chances of winning a Stanley Cup this decade. Like uh, we can't ignore that. It has to be said. It, sh- it honestly it should be shouted from the rooftops. Well, at least the radio, <laughs> at least at least into the microphones uh, oh. that we have in front of us. Oh, if man. if not the rooftops, I'll, I'll I'll do it from the rooftops when they stop letting me on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> You'll just transition into that guy. <laughs> just get it finding a rooftop and shouting out your Canucks takes, your Lane Peterson just, uh- takes. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna be like out there with a sign on one one end it'll say uh, the end is near and on the other end it'll say stop signing guys in their late twenties to term, <laughs> please. Yeah, table saw James text in. Would the Schneider trade be the last time the organization really caught you off guard in a trade? And the the thing with that is again, and not necessarily from an unwillingness to deal Roberto Luongo, but it was at least temporarily keeping the established star player and taking the other route, right? It, it was, we're theoretically going to trade this massive high-profile star we have. Oh, instead, actually, we're going to do this other thing. And again, I don't think in that situation it was an unwillingness to trade Roberto Luongo, but it is another example of a time, and I know he eventually got traded. Yes, I understand that, but it is another example of a time where, you know, trading major high-profile star was on the table and then did not come to fruition at least in that moment. So anyways, I know people are yep. uh, upset that I have birthed this idea into the world here right now. No, but... no, no. I mean, like, I think you're reading the tea leaves correctly. I just, it's really, it's, it's hard to grapple with. Like, I really don't understand. I just don't understand how you get better. If you lock up that much money into this many players who are this age, you know, I, I, I know, like it, it's so it's so out of line with how Stanley Cup winning teams are built. Like you cannot find an example of a team built this way that's had success. You know, I mean, this is like the Knicks model. 
<laughs> Wait, you're saying we don't want to? <laughs> yeah, I'm saying you the don't want to don't be the emulate the Knicks. No, I am. I yes, yeah, correct. No. I'm saying do not emulate the Knicks. But that you know, if that's the road we go down, we sort of know how it ends. And hey, look, it'll give me stuff to rant about. But I'd rather I'd rather cover wins. I'd rather cover interesting moves. And and look, I actually think, um, in some ways, in some ways, this club has a management group that, you know might be capable of producing that um but they you know the Mil- the miller deal make made this made the climb more uphill uh compounding that further navigating navigating a world where you've got you know uh in three years time uh a 31 year old bo horvat a 34 year old or a 33 year old jt miller and a 35 year old oliver ekman larson i mean you're not winning a cup with those three guys making 22 plus million on your cap, even if it goes up 20 million like this. It's just not how it's done. It's just not going to work. And I, I, you know, I, I can't possibly countenance this team making moves where we know it's not going to work this far in advance. Like we, we know the moment those deals are signed, if they are how it ends. And that's boring. Well said. Final, uh, that's the final word of the show for us today. We will be back with our Friday edition tomorrow, looking ahead to the weekend and the week to come for the Canucks. Uh, signing off here, Thomas Drance, Jamie Dodd on Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650.